Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I'm going to keep things pretty brief both this week and next. To cap off my summer, I'll be spending some time away exploring the beautiful otherworldly terrain and immersing myself in the culture and folklore of Iceland. With any luck, maybe we'll find a haunted stop or two along our travels. And at the very least, get a good view of the erupting volcano. Scandinavian legends and lore have always been some of my favorite, so I'm excited to see what tales I can collect while I'm there. Speaking of collecting tales, we're a few weeks into our haunted house submissions, and we've had some excellent entries so far. We'll be switching up to regular submissions in just a couple weeks, so keep those tales of terrifying abodes coming. The more creaky floorboards and murder basements, the better. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions. Now, without further ado, let's dive right into our fiction. We have one story for you this evening, which comes from Ashley Lehman. Ashley Lehman's work has previously appeared in 7x7 and Cotton Xenomorph, and is forthcoming in Grist. 
She currently lives in Virginia with her Cajun husband and two cats. Children of the Night, join me for Ashley Lehman's Electric City, a Tales to Terrify original. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Google Maps says go right, so Colt Wynn goes left. He does it because no one is impressed with his poems comparing mountain goat's horns to the spirals in French pastries. He's Percy Shelley when he's supposed to be Charles Bukowski, gritty, brooding, capital R real. But it's not his fault he grew up in the suburbs of Odessa, Texas. A shithole for sure, but not an interesting shithole. It's not his fault he went to good public schools and didn't grow up poor. He apparently wasn't supposed to take dare seriously as a kid. But now he's 20, and he's trying to be a real artist, which means his current girlfriend, Jessica, is a football match of red flags. And he drinks too much, even though it gives him indigestion, and he drives to Amarillo once a month for fresh writing material via his dad's constant sideways rage the only really traumatic element of his life thus far. This visit was a waste. His father had spent the weekend listing all the reasons Colt is a fuck-up, but that's nothing new, nothing Colt can use. Almost 50 miles into the 200-mile drive home, it occurs to Colt that he should be driving through New Mexico's meth holes instead of the highway, looking for some unfortunate soul with a story he can steal. Last month, a talkative crackhead in front of a 7-Eleven had told him how his friend had died in that very 7-Eleven's dumpster, mangled by the dump truck's compactor. 
Colt had used it for a Hail Mary composition done in 15 minutes before class started, but his creative writing professor had called that poem inspired. So, he goes left, and when Google Maps yells at him, he turns it off. The off-ramp ends in an intersection whose light blinks a warning red. There's a service road ahead flanked by a closed strip mall, one boarded-up corner window spray-painted with, Thanks for your business. The street dead ends into a dirt road that runs north and south. Both will take him away from the highway. Maybe he can find some kind of Americana hopium rancher out here, or a grim, infertile dust bowl woman who works at a diner that hasn't had a customer since Eisenhower. Something. Otherwise, he's going to end up writing another poem about his fucking father. Still, he hesitates. His 97 Accords check engine light is on. But he'd heard somewhere you weren't supposed to service your engine past 100,000 miles because servicing it would only knock all the accumulated particulate loose and kill the car. If that's true, Colt has been very responsible. It'll be fine, he thinks as he gooses the gas. He turns south. Colt stares at the car's black heart, looking for easy answers. Something unplugged or uncapped, but there's only a lot of blue smoke coming from everywhere. Shit, he says. It doesn't help. In the past two hours, the only person he'd seen was an old white guy sitting in front of the gas station 30 minutes back. Colt had stopped for gas and said hi, but the old guy hadn't even acknowledged him. Now, Colt is stuck in the middle of nowhere and is still going to have to write about his fucking dad. Prickly pear paternoster. No, single syllable desertification. Dad. No, that's awful. There is a poem in this, though, somewhere. Maybe diatribe from a dipshit. His dad has called him that enough times while giving him rug burns or pinching the backs of his arms that it's become kind of a nickname. Staring at the dead engine, Colt wonders with grim humiliation if his old man isn't right. Case in point, it's July, over a hundred degrees. He's broken down in the middle of nowhere and his only means of hydration is half a can of Arizona iced tea. He's in flip-flops and doesn't have a hat. His phone has 3% battery remaining. Even over the last two hours of being totally and completely lost, he hadn't thought to plug it in. Shit, he says again. Not poetic at all. Observe. That's the voice of his creative writing professor, a man with a philosopher's ring of long gray hair, a man who refuses, through professional distance, to be Colt's surrogate father. Poetry is observation. What do you see? Blistering air ripples off the road in invisible sheets. Colt shades his eyes with one hand, hoping to spot a towering Sitgo sign or some similar prosaic indication of civilization. But there is only blue, wide-open New Mexico sky and scrubby beige desert in all directions. Not even any cattle farm barbed wire fence laced with tumbleweeds. Laced with tumbleweeds. That's a good line. He'll have to remember that. Colt gets back into the car and slams the door. Opens it again to catch the breeze. 
He turns the key, and the engine grinds with a horrible gravel-in-a-garbage-disposal sound, and he spends a minute trying to get the mouthfeel of the sound. And then texts Jessica. When his texts are seen but not responded to, he calls her. Hey, Jess, my car broke down. I know you. Did you think... King Slime? Dare you... Me! Fuck you! The call cuts out. Colt tries to call his mom next. His phone dies halfway through dialing. He plugs the phone's cord into the Accord cigarette adapter, but nothing happens. He drinks the stale tea and watches in his rearview mirror for the metal wink of someone coming. The sun creeps up into high noon. Cursing, Colt gets out and considers the horizon again. The last gas station was 30 minutes back the way he came, so the next town can't be too far. And though he feels uneasy about leaving the car, he can't get his dad's taut, disgusted expression out of his mind. Let me compare thy frown to an arroyo. The look, Colt calls it, when he brought home a bad grade or didn't do his chores exactly right. I don't understand you good old dad would say. Dipshit, his eyes would add with that look. Sometimes he would cuff the back of Colt's head just because. Colt grabs his phone and his charger cord, shoves them into his pocket, and starts walking. Half an hour later, Colt sees the sun gleaming off what looks like a water tower, pin-sized with distance and far to his left. Exhausted, parched, his shirt pulled up over his sunburned head. He lurches off the road into the scrub, praying it isn't a mirage. The water tower reads, Electric City. Colt is so dehydrated his blood feels like cement, his eyeballs like fishing weights. He's tripped half a dozen times, and so he's cut up from the cactus, though he's licked all the blood off his arms in a feeble attempt to slake his thirst. Good details, distinct, concrete, his creative writing not father would say. Remember this. He stumbles towards the first building he sees, a gas station. A bell jingles when he pushes open the door. His aching eyes fall immediately on a back wall of clear-doored refrigerators. Most of them are empty but one holds a battalion of blue-jacketed Pepsis. Colt staggers to it and wrenches the door open, grabs and cracks a bottle top, and drinks the contents down so fast he nearly pukes foam back up over his sunburned and bleeding feet. He's on his third bottle when he hears something. He stops and drags the back of his arm against his mouth, realizing the figure he must cut. Crazy-eyed, pillaging without paying, and looks around with an apology on his tongue. But there's no one to apologize to. The gas station is empty of haggard women buying luckies or little kids trying to get their dad to buy them candy bars. Not his dad, oh no. Not unless you wanted that look. There's no one here. Not even a cashier behind the counter. There's a lot of things not here, in fact. No fountain drink dispenser, no icy machine churning lazy clockwork revolutions. The shelves are almost empty. A wall of spam here, a few cans of electronics cleaner there. 
but there is a layer of pillowy dust where the chips and jerky and tire pressure checkers should be. The stuff that is there looks wrong too, though he can't quite put his finger on why. Colt cracks open another bottle and drinks it slowly. It's lukewarm. The refrigerators aren't running. The gas station is closed. That's easy, obvious. They're closed and someone forgot to lock the door. Colt had done that back when he worked at Burger King right after high school. Had gotten fired over it. And even though he made up some excuse to his parents, I'm being wasted here, there's no future in it. He could tell that his dad knew from that look. You're going to go to college when you can't even remember to lock a door. How does he always know? But there it is, that sound again. Shuffling. Someone's here. Hey, sorry, Colt calls as he circles around the shelves toward the sound, reaching for his wallet. My car broke down. I'll pay for this. You don't happen to have a phone I could... It's a robot. A robot, kneeling on the linoleum floor, stocking the shelves with sleeves of powdered donuts. Colt's mind rejects this image immediately. He may not be a genius, but as far as he knows, the most advanced robots that exist look like they're made of metal connects and regularly star in YouTube compilations by running into walls or falling down stairs. This thing has a beige plastic mannequin's body and joints like office chair wheels. It looks up at Colt with a painted acrylic doll's eyes set into soft silicone sockets. Colt has the crazy impulse to bop it on the back of the head to see if its eyes will pop out and roll across the floor like marbles. Remember this. Think is a series of the sort of the sunlight. The robot's lips don't move. The sound comes from somewhere in its chest, a neutrally helpful, manufactured voice with staggered tonal misadventures that make Colt think of a joke from high school English. He puts the emphasis on the wrong syllable. That's why he thinks he doesn't understand it at first. What? He says stupidly. It couldn't haven't the grim purpose now seemed no serious, say that's obvious. Even though it's looking at him, the robot's hands are still on task, moving with a jerking gait that's nevertheless frighteningly rapid and precise in a way its speech only dreams of. Colt steps back once, twice until the robot is hidden from sight by the top of the display shelf and keeps going, pushing the gas station door open with his back. Once outside, when the door swings shut and settles in its frame and the robot doesn't come howling out after him, Colt finally lets out a startled, disbelieving laugh that only spooks him further. He stops, looks around for someone to laugh with, but the street is as empty as the gas station had been, and he has that same creeping feeling that something here is wrong, that he isn't seeing things he should be seeing. Parked cars, for example, dog turds on the sidewalk, cigarette butts in the gutters. Weeds sprout up through the cracks in the asphalt under his feet. An abandoned town, that's what he's found. So why is the robot here? With a shaking hand, he raises the Pepsi to his mouth, but now that he's somewhat hydrated, he realizes it's off. It tastes flat and smells vaguely like pesticide. He looks at the bottle. That's it. That's why the shelves bothered him. 
The logo is all wrong and the shape of the bottle is too round. He finds the expiration date. It's nearly 14 years past. The buildings of Electric City are weather-worn and old in an ultra-modern way, like some 1950s City of the Future Disneyland display. Flanking the gas station are round-topped commercial buildings, and further on is a neighborhood of vaguely cylindrical shotgun-style houses. In the wild silence, Colt can hear what sounds like life inside them. He knocks on the first door and waits. The gas station robot must be a prototype. Probably all it can do is stock shelves. He fights the desire to go back and poke his head into the gas station and follow, observe. What is the metaphor? Another of his creative writing professor's questions. It's not enough to simply describe. Find the metaphor. Colt shivers. Despite those life sounds, his knocks go unanswered. Hey, he shouts at the house, then to the street around him. I broke down. I need help. No doors open. No blinds or curtains twitch. He circles to the closest window and cups his hands around his eyes, presses his face against the glass. Hey, someone! He tries the doorknob. It turns easily under his hand. The door opens into a pristine space that is model home bare. Beneath the windows, tracts of carpet are sun-bleached in perfect arcs. Despite the water tower, there's nothing in the kitchen's taps. But on the kitchen table, there is an old boxy phone from the 70s, canary yellow, weighing as much as a cinder block. And though he has no hopes when he picks up the receiver, a faint and wavering dial tone hums in his ear. So he's rescued, essentially. All he has to do is call 911. He glances back toward the gas station. It would be a shame to leave right away, though, wouldn't it? He's never written science fiction. Science fact? Poetry before. What a waste to avoid mining this kooky place. The sounds. Sounds, there are no sounds, just the wind. What's so special about that? And smells. Smells, it smells like the desert. You smell that shit every day. Of this crazy apocalypse scape for his work. Find the metaphor. He hangs the receiver up. In the quiet house, his movements feel too big, too loud, intrusive. He keeps waiting for someone to come down the stairs and demand he explain himself. No one does. There are more robots in the other houses. A robot pushing a vacuum here. The vacuum is broken and the robot moves the machine in stark silence. In the next house, a robot folds threadbare laundry. In a kitchen, a robot stands at the counter, cutting nothing with a steak knife in its hand. The cutting board below the blade split, the knife tapping a crevice in the zinc countertop. Tap, tap, tap. They all have that same crash test dummy aesthetic. This one pink, that one blue. Lighter in places like playground toys long forgotten outside. When Colt finds them, they stop working and regard him with those strange acrylic eyes. How such things take their way for almost one fragile, the blue maid bot says. 
of those who was out of the fact that so far mistakes can't hurry, the pink chef bot says. The yellow laundry bot only produces a horrible buzzing sound. Inside the hospital, and that should have been a clue, the title is just hospital and not the name of some rich patron or a saint, Saint Agnes of the Dismembered, Saint Joseph of the Mauled. The hallway floor is sticky with some dark stuff Colt can't identify, but his brain insists is blood. The hospital's shoebox-sized rooms are almost entirely occupied by simple metal-framed beds, and on those are human-sized plastic bags full of blue fluid. Weights are printed on the bag's fronts in bold print. 300, 400, 600 pounds. Two lavender bots lift the bags and roll them aside to strip the beds of their sheets. As Colt watches, one of the bag's corner flaps gets caught in the robot's elbow joint. The bag tears open and blue fluid pours onto the floor. And the blue fluid pours out like... Like... He can't think of anything. Can't even remember the words he's already come up with. The robots strip the bedsheets, fit the now wet and sagging mattress with new bedding, and return the nearly empty bag to the bed. The two walk through the puddle and onto the next room, trailing blue footprints behind them. They don't say anything, not even to each other. Despite the heat, Colt is suddenly drenched in a freezing sweat. He retreats back down the black asphalt road that is so hot his flip-flops sucker to it. A road, yes. A road means a connection to the outside world. All he has to do is go back and call, and some nice policeman will come out and meet him. But the asphalt ends as cleanly as if it has been knife-sliced, and nothing resumes its path, not even a dirt trail. Just thick models of yucca and thorny buckthorn carpeting a desert that stretches on forever. And this fear is... Help your audience see it. Find the words. Okay, that's enough. He wants to be rescued now. He turns back toward the house. Here is another robot coming down the sidewalk toward him, its head and shoulders sun-wrecked, pushing a similarly sun-wrecked stroller, Inside the stroller is a glass vase wrapped in a diaper. As Colt watches, the robot stops and circles to the front of the stroller, picks up the vase and bounces it once, twice, then lifts it and smashes it into the street. Another robot approaches, walking what is supposed to be a robot dog, only the dog is dragging its ass on the sidewalk with a sound like an aluminum can scraping concrete. The comment that she replied in Jinx world she sat quietly ma'am with his fist, the dog walker says, considering the ruined vase. The various end certainly knows you'll tell them and the fourth time proved a forbidden sort of course, the babysitter robot replies. Ha ha ha, the dog walker robot says. Ha ha ha, the babysitter robot replies. The phone, he needs to get to the phone. But when he finds the house, a pastel green robot, where had it been, upstairs, stands at the kitchen table. It's holding a feather duster in one hand and the phone receiver in the other. Colt backs out of the house slowly, closes the door behind him as quietly as he can. He can't seem to catch his breath. 
The robots are everywhere now, dotting the overgrown yards, filling the street, watching. Forget the phone, the Pepsis. He'll take the Pepsis and go back to his car, and then he'll find that other gas station with the old white dude who will call him crazy, who will tell him this is only a test site and he has nothing to worry about, or whatever. He'll be out, is what matters. All he needs is something to keep him hydrated. Inside the gas station, the beige stalking robot stands in front of the open refrigerator and in a pool of soda. The pool's edges foamed like ocean water. A dozen empty bottles float on the linoleum floor. There are only two bottles left in the cooler. But it with their tracks, where don't take this farce? The robot says, looking at Colt. It cracks open a bottle, raises it to its still lips, and pours the brown liquid over its face. Where we must not necessarily an officially imposed story to be told, it says. With a roar, Colt charges forward, grabs the last bottle, and pushes the robot back. It slips. That at least looks human. It falls to the ground with a plastic-sounding clatter. It's too hot for running. The sun is still high and unrelenting. Colt runs anyways, out of the gas station, down the street. The robots follow him, first walking and then trotting and then sprinting after him far faster than their strange crash-dummy legs should allow, and Colt sobs as he feels them gaining. Remember this for later, for after. The dog drags itself behind them. Colt plunges back into the desert. Like demons encountering a sacred ward, the robots halt at the edge of the street. The Pepsi doesn't last long. Even so late in the day, the sun is blistering. The cacti cast only pan-sized circles of crooked shade. Colt feels like he's walking straight, but every time he looks back, Electric City's water tower is in a different place in relation to him, to his left or directly behind him, or parallel on his right. Once he looks up and finds that he's gotten turned around and is heading back towards it. He thinks of the robot he pushed. Use your words, his teachers had told him when he came to school with bruises, assuming he was fighting the other kids. Use your words, he thinks now, and laughs hideously. Use your words when robots chase you down, when your father punches you when your mother isn't around. Maybe that's why he writes sestinas about white sands and tumbleweeds. He's been trying his whole life to find the perfect phrase that will result in a successful weapon, and is unwilling to admit to himself that it doesn't exist. My father, he thinks in a feverish calliope tune, my father, my father, my father, my father, the tower, myself, the drone. Behind him, the water tower never seems to grow any smaller. The strap in one of his flip-flops snaps, and he tries to hold his shoe on with his toes through the razor bramble and undergrowth. Between snatches of lines he can't place, sunlight on a broken column. Where is that from? One of the robots? He has halfway convinced himself that none of this is real, that he's passed out from the heat and is dreaming, or he's in an episode of The Twilight Zone, that no matter what direction he goes, he will always be led back to Electric City, 
to the water tower. The water tower. He stops, looks back. He's too dehydrated to sweat. His skin is as parched as unglazed clay. Pressing his palms against his aching forehead, he tries to think. From the top of the tower, he will be able to see for miles, close by towns or roads with traffic. Without a map or a compass, he might miss these things by a few hundred meters and doom himself to wandering through the desert until he drops. What's the metaphor? He finds an outcropping of rocks that cast a thick band of shade and hunkers himself down, making plans, waiting for dark. My father, he wonders, and he can't help but draw malformed family pictures in the sand. The sun sinks on the horizon. There is no disengagement now, no familiar artist-observer dispassion. Colt cannot distinguish himself from his hurts. The robots are waiting for him at the neighborhood's outlet, framed by the setting sun. The laundry bot and the chef bot and the lavender hospital bots and others, ones he hasn't seen before, almost a dozen in all, some missing limbs, some the size of children. He's trying to conceal himself behind the scraggly and inconsistent tufts of tall yellow grass, but they see him, their heads moving as one. They don't move or speak. What do you want? He screams at them. I don't understand you. The beige gas station bot isn't there, and Colt wonders if it's lying in a sticky pool of soda on the gas station floor, if he's killed it. He doesn't care. The water tower is just outside of the city, in the L-shaped bend between the commercial buildings and the houses, surrounded by a double chain link fence topped with razor wire. There's a padlock the size of a paperback on the fence's gate, but the chain is rusted, and there's a pile of old piping by the fence. Colt creeps up to this pile and combs through it, and when he finds a length of pipe that seems thin enough, he jams it into the gap above the chain and pulls, trying to force the links to snap. What is the metaphor? Shut up, he rages. Oh, shut the fuck up. The robots follow him here and stand at the street that leads to the fence, watching. In the evening light, they look less malicious, less uncanny. Stupid, in fact, like all the village idiots come out to gawp at a show. Had he really been afraid of them? Idiot, dipshit. Yeah, yeah, he thinks tiredly. Yeah, I know. He pushes and pulls on the pipe, but his head aches, his arms are shaky, his tongue feels swollen enough to suffocate him, and nothing is giving. Not the chain, not even the pipe, nothing bending, nothing breaking. He might as well be hanging from a monkey bar. Help me, Colt moans furiously. Jesus, don't just stand there, help me. Help me the dog walker robot calls back. Help me, the blue maid bot echoes. It steps forward and Colt spooks, backs away from the pipe. The maid bot pushes him, sharply, its hands at the hollows of his shoulders, hands without all their fingers, palms ending with tangles of metal boning, and Colt feels these stab through his shirt and into his skin. He falls onto the pile of pipes with a discordant musical sound. Ha ha, 
one of the Lavender Hospital bots says. Ha ha, the other replies. It happens so quickly, he feels apart from it. A new pipe is suddenly in his hands, this one thicker, heavier, and it connects with the blue made bot's skull with a sound like hitting a hockey puck. The robot's eyes do not pop out, but one of them rolls back to reveal a plastic white back etched with a serial number. Cracked, its plastic face slips, squinting its other eye, dragging down the corner of its mouth into a sneer. Disgust. Colt roars, cocks the pipe back like a baseball bat, and hits it again and again in a furious frenzy. Neck, shoulder, torso, in the head, over and over until its skull is no longer a dome. Fuck off, he screams. Fuck off, fuck off. The robot slips to the ground like a fainting waif. The others watch silently, as if the audience to a strange stage play. The dog lets out a telephone shrill arf arf. Now you can either help me, Colt screams as he points the pipe at them, then hooks it in the chain hoop. Or you can all just fuck off. He's startled by the strength in his voice, the way it doesn't waver. The robots don't move, and Colt finds that impossibly he is grinning. Use your words, they said. His teachers, his mother, his guidance counselors. Yeah, well, what had words ever done for him? Maybe his old man is right. Maybe there's just dipshits and idiots and morons who need to get shoved around until they figure out there isn't a metaphor. Maybe his dad has been trying to help him, to force him to stand up for himself. Maybe that's why he's always been such a disappointment. Will his dad be proud of him now? That's what I thought. Colt kicks the maid bot's head. It flies off and pinballs off the pink chef bot's feet. Colt licks his lips. You goddamn dipshits. It feels like the first time he said fuck you when he was 12, whispering it to himself with horror and bitter wonder when the bus driver looked pointedly away from the bruises around his eyes. The dog continues its staticky arf, arf. The robots move forward, all at once, without acknowledging each other. Colt's hot blood courage flees him like a bladder letting go. He stumbles back away from the fence. He turns and starts to run, but he's used up, tapped out, and the run is little more than a stagger. They can't come into the desert, he thinks desperately as he lurches away from the tower. It's evening, and the tower's shadow is long. They can't come into the desert. They stopped at the edge of the road before. The robots pick up pipes from the pile and regard him with faces incapable of expression. The first blow catches the back of his knee, and he falls with a scream. You can't, he howls as he claws himself to his feet, cutting his hands on the prickly pears, scraping his belly. You can't. The next blow smashes him in the neck, and he can no longer speak. But he keeps trying to run, even as the next blow shatters his teeth and dislocates his jaw. The robots work together with efficiency, swinging in a pattern that looks like cacophony, though none of their pipes collide. None of the blows strike in the same precise moment or place. When he falls for the last time, 
Colt is blind in one eye and with a call of blood over the other. Both of his arms are broken, his ribs pulped. He sinks to his knees and tries to crawl away, pushing at the desert dust with his feet. What is the metaphor? No, he moans, face down with the desert sand in his mouth and plastered to the blood on his face, waiting for the killing blow, knowing that all the blows were killing. But none arrives. He opens his good eye to see a robot, the dog walker, kneeling to lie down next to him in the dirt. It regards him with those strange eyes. I saw what I suppose I wonder if it's machine, it says. Behind it, he can see another robot descending to its knees, and another, until all of them are face down in the dirt. All of these idiot things drifting down to lie beside him. That was Ashley Lehman's Electric City, as read by Andrew Gibson. Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming. He remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson, or for the more romantically inclined, Blake Lockhart. You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in the Narrator Nook, and The Haven Discord servers, links to which you can find in the show notes. Thank you, Andrew. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced 
by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we feed the hungering darkness with more Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 